0: So I do want to encourage you to be a part of uh, Sunday school. Uh, it's especially this series, as we're kind of doing one-off weeks, and so it's not a, a summer series that builds on itself. It's what does the Bible say about, and then a particular topic, And this week is rest. And as I've been thinking about sabbatical, uh, what is oftentimes missing in a culture that loves productivity and work? Uh, and success, we don't know how to rest uh, as as a people. And so we're going to look at what do the scriptures say about rest and how does that interact with our work. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, this, since this is the first time we're doing this in our building, uh, when we actually begin, we want to invite everybody to be a part of because the students are going to be there. And so if uh, if Kind of our donut hour runs long and is loud. It's going to be difficult for all the classes to do uh, their teaching. So we want to invite everybody to be a part of that when things get rolling. Uh, And uh, we would love for you. To do that, So today we're going to continue in our series, uh, and it's a series that we've entitled, How Then Shall We Live? But today we're going to look at what is it that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. Because how then shall we live as we look at theological topics, as we look and in, in examine those things, uh, and what, what are the impact that those things have on our lives? Like we looked at Scripture. As God reveals himself in his word, we looked at creation, the image of God, sin and the fall of man, providence, which is God's active role in this world. And then we did two weeks on redemption, obviously that he redeems the human heart and brings dead people back to life uh, in, uh, in their spiritual walk through the blood of the cross, but also is that he redeems all Things. And so today we're going to kind of pick up that theme of redeeming all things and what is the role of the church in the world? And so, how are we as God's people involved in that process of redeeming the world? Next week, we're going to pick up the idea of the covenant family. So, today we're looking at the church. uh, Next week, we're going to look at the covenant family because I think when we start thinking, all right, God's redeeming all things. We're, we're thinking, you know, massive things, big things, you know. Uh, and at times, it's a mystery of how are we involved in that. And just quite simply, I think the Scriptures say, the way that you live at home is the redemption of God. It's many other things, but that, it could be as simple as that. It doesn't have to be magnificent. I think God redeems and restores primarily in the ordinary and the mundane. And as God redeems, so we're going to look at that next week, and so that'll be a good thing to to see as as we do that. So today we're going to be in First Peter chapter two, uh, starting in verse nine. It's a passage we've looked at before. It was actually the passage we used to begin our called out series. Uh, that was a couple years ago, as we are called out by God uh, to be in the world. We're going to use the f- uh, two verses that we use there and then keep going as to what does it look like for God's people to live in this world. Will you stand with me as we just reflect on the Word of God? God is speaking. We long to hear from Him. So God writes this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Uh, Father, would you be in our midst? Would you, uh, would you take these things? Would you challenge us in our thinking? Would you renew our understanding that we are people that reflect your work in us. Father, I pray that the attitude that flows out of that would, would honor you. Uh, God, for those in this room who have never, uh, never come to faith in Christ, never submitted their life or surrendered themselves to you as Lord, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Father, would you draw us all to you? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So my freshman year in college uh that was a little bit ago freshman year in college I I took freshman uh psychology right you had to do a social science and so I took psychology and uh it was an interesting class and uh, but they but the prof talked about this one it, this one lesson on how social pressure affects the way that people behave and he talked about this experiment uh it's probably been done enough that it wouldn't work anymore but uh that uh, basically the the teacher or whoever the researcher would get five volunteers from a class and they would come and stand up in front of everybody and he would hold up a piece of paper that was green and then the first four people were in on the experiment the poor fifth person had no idea what was going on right yeah, it's psychology at its best, and so and so the first person, you know, they're holding up a green piece of paper. Hey, what color is this piece of paper? Blue. All right. Second person, what color is this piece of paper? Blue. Third, blue. Fourth, blue. They're all in on it because they know it's green, but they're going to say it's blue. And then they ask the fifth person who doesn't know the experiment, and they say, What color is this piece of paper? And they say, More often than not, now it was like 80, 90% of the time, they will say blue, even though they know it's green. Why? Because they don't want to stick out. They don't want to look like an idiot. Maybe they're the one that is, is colorblind and they're not seeing it properly. And they, for all those, all those ways of societal pressure, somebody that knows that piece of paper is absolutely green will say blue. Now, that's a psychology uh, uh, you know, experiment, but you can, we feel that in a lot of different ways. The ways that you just don't want to stick out Remember when you were in middle school and it was like, you just didn't want to do anything that made you kind of stick out in the crowd. You just didn't want to be noticed. You just wanted to be part of everything else. I think God's people uh, can easily tend towards the same thing. Because obviously, God's work in us, in this world, is distinct and unique, but yet You ever felt the the pressure to just act like everybody else, just be like everybody else so that we don't stand out, so that we don't draw a bunch of attention to ourselves and all of those things? It's basically the temptation of God's people to not live as we are, that we are products and we are people that have the work of God in us, but it's very tempting to say, you know what, I don't want to stick out too much. I want to be and look like our culture. Because what we're going to see in uh, in this passage is that we are people that reflect the work of God, okay? And so for us to live in this world, we have to reflect the work of God. Now, that doesn't sound like all that, uh, you know, all that staggering of a point because it flows out of the gospel. So 1 Peter 2, 9, we've already read it. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What's interesting is when we talk about the church, we often say the church is not a building even though we all say, hey, we're going to church, okay? Uh, The church, as the Scriptures define it, is not even a bunch of programs that a group of people do. The church is the people of God gathered together. So when we talk about the church, we are defined as God's people. Now, in this verse, notice the work of God, okay? You are a chosen race, You know, it's His work in us that becomes the defining characteristic because who does the choosing? God does. We are holy. Do we make ourselves holy? Of course not. It is God making us holy more and more after the likeness of Jesus. We are God's possession that He has purchased us. He has ransomed us. He has sent His Son to the cross so that we might be His people. And He calls us out of darkness. It is God calling, God bringing us out. God is the one who redeems. Now, that doesn't sound all that, you know, earth-shattering for us as God's people who sit here and rehearse the gospel week after week after week, but what's, what's huge is that it is the work of God that defines us, not us. Because what that means is in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 10, you were not a people but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, now you received mercy. We are a people called by God, belonging to him, receiving the mercy of God. That that's what defines us. Now you're saying, "Okay, I knew that before I walked in here." But what attitude ought that produce in God's people? If that's the defining characteristic of God's people, that God is at work in our lives, If God chose us, God called us, God brought us, God shows us mercy, then the church is a people that are are, uh, receiving all of those different things, and that changes things. If it's all God's work, we can't take any credit for it. If it's God who makes us holy, then we can't feel superior to people in our culture because it's God's work, not If God is the one who called us out and brought us into light, we shouldn't wonder why others in the world don't act like God calls them to. Or we shouldn't wonder, why are people so blind? Well, because we were too. And if we miss the fact that we were blind and God redeemed us, we were dead and God made us alive, we were not following after God, quite honestly, we were his enemies and God brought us to him. If you forget that, then the church can get on its hobby horse and look down on everybody else. But that doesn't reflect the work of God. That reflects the human heart puffed up in pride. When God is the one who's at work in us, When it is God who redeems, it brings us low, doesn't it? The church is meant to be a people that enjoys the mercy of God, enjoys His grace, enjoys the freedom that flows from that work, and we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you, right? We ought to be joyful, not grumpy. We ought to be humble, not judgmental. We ought to be sharing God's grace rather than hiding from the world. Now, that sounds great, you know, kind of as we preach it, but then we go live that. And it's very difficult to be joyful uh, when things are difficult or when things are not going well. Uh, in a way that's really productive or helpful. It's easy to become just grumpy and judgmental and looking down on everybody. But again, that is not the move of the gospel. That's the move of the human heart that's taken God's work and kind of twisted it in some fashion. The church is the people of God and that ought to define how we live in this world. Not just in what we do, but our attitude and our heart towards our neighbors, coworkers, and people around us. But if we're really honest, you know, you listen to any news story as they talk about Christians, okay? What, 99 out of 100 are not exactly glowing, uh, glowing uh, reports. People are like, ah, those people are judgmental. Those people are, are, are uh, you know what, they just, they don't like people. They, they're, they're, they, they feel like they've got everything figured out. I think we should let Jesus be an offense and we should not be the offense uh, to a watching world. Now, I'm not saying be light on truth because we're going to see that countered in one second in this passage, but we ought to be the people of God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and that brings a natural humility to God's people. We ought to be the most soft, humble people in this world, not the ones who are pointing the finger. We are inviting people to know the living God rather than tell everybody that they are wrong. It's interesting because then we're going to see how does that then work itself out. Edmund Clowney writes this, um, a great theologian and teacher. He said that the identity of the church is necessary for the mission of the church. So we've got to rightly orient who we are so that we can then live what we are supposed to live out in this world, okay? And so when we do that, then we're gonna see that the people of God uh, are then strangers in this world. So we're, we're, we reflect the heart of God and the work of God in us, but we also then have to understand that we're strangers in this world because at verse 11 of First of Peter, Verse 11 of chapter 2, the book switches its focus. It switches its focus, and it begins to address how God's people are meant to live in an unbelieving world. That becomes the focus. Okay, we read it earlier. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter describes God's people as what? That we are sojourners and exiles. People that are on a journey that they haven't found their home, or people that are driven out of their home and they're in some other land hoping to return. I actually love that word exiles because it does frame rightly how God's people are and, and who we are in this world. If we're exiles, we had a place of belonging, basically, the world as created. But then sin and the fall and corruption has driven us to a place where the world that we live in now, as it's corrupted, this doesn't feel like home. We are exiles here, longing for it to be returned or longing to be returned to the place where we once were, okay? It's oftentimes thought, you know what, Christians are holding on to get get out of this world and go to heaven and be done with this. But the reality is, you read Revelation 21 and 22, we're, we're going to spend eternity in the new earth, the redeemed creation of God. The new heavens will come down to the new earth, that, that there is a re, there's an exile where we live like this is not the place that we were, yet this is, we are longing for it to be returned. So God's people, yes, we don't belong, because the word sojourner and exile, they're basically uh, the, the overlap of meaning is is basically they're the same word. So don't try to parse what's a sojourner, what's an exile. Basically, we don't belong in the world that we live. And exile and alienation are themes of this book of First Peter. He even addresses the very first verse of this, this letter Peter is writing. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, So the dispersion is when God's people were driven out of their homeland and now they are everywhere across the world or in these these places in Asia, they're exiles of the dispersion. They are alienated from where they once lived. And so then we are called exiles and sojourners. But even beyond that fact that we don't belong, what's interesting is that the unbelieving world will be suspicious of God's church and, quite honestly, hostile to believers. So in ancient Rome, how were Christians received in ancient Rome? We're talking first century. Okay, there was a Roman writer, uh, Suetonius. He considered Christians to be Be part of this mischievous superstition and they deserved punishment for it. That was one Roman writer. Uh, Tacitus, another Roman writer, thought that Christians should be detested for their evil practices. He even writes that Christians were, quote, loathed because of their abominations. That's interesting. We kind of think we're kind of mainstream. Yet the Roman world, first century, saw Christianity as an abomination. First century Christians were actually charged with immorality because they emphasized love so much. And if you know anything about Roman view of sexuality, it was licentious to the highest order, but it was the Christians who were being accused of immorality because their emphasis on love. Christians were even accused of cannibalism, first century, because because uh, people had heard that they ate and drank, they ate flesh and drank blood at their special gatherings, i.e. a complete misrepresentation of what communion in the Lord's Supper is. But if that's first century, is it any shock that verse 12, we're going to get to in a second, says that when they speak against you as evildoers, continue to live in front of them what it looks like to be God's people. That, that the world is going to look at the church and say, they're, a, they're crazy. They're, they're, they were charging the first century church with immorality and cannibalism, calling them evildoers. Basically, the world is going to malign God's people. The world is going to call us haters, because the world has redefined the word love. We're going to look at this actually in our student ministry time tonight of how the world has hijacked the idea of love and marriage and the family. Uh, and, but, you know, one Democratic presidential candidate from 2020, Marianne Williamson, she didn't get too far, but she kind of was speaking to how America needs to be freed from, quote, Dark, uh, psychic force of collectivized hatred. A dark, psychic force of collectivized hatred. Basically, Christianity. That only love can cast out, she says. What has our culture picked up? That the LGBTQ plus movement is tied to love, and so love is love. Our culture says, "Gap has said it this way recently: "Love always not always as one word, all different ways. Express or Adidas would say, "Love unites. Verizon: love calls back. Uh, Fresh in company. Uh, they created they created, uh, for Pride Month actually, this is last year they created a love salad. Absolute Vodka offered a drop of love in honor of Pride Month. Starbucks just put love in a rainbow color on their coffee cups uh, to celebrate Pride Month last year. So our culture has redefined the word love. It's taken love as God would define it, and it has redefined it to say that it demands acceptance of anyone's individual individuality and identity it demands acceptance and said that love would never speak against someone's preferences and someone's identity and that idea and depiction of love is the complete opposite of biblical and so god's people are going to be spoken of as haters as evil doers Uh, because the redefinition of the word of love is acceptance at all costs. Problem is, nobody ever lives like that. Nobody lives that consistently because we all, even all of these companies that would say love is those things, would reject a serial murderer's identity and preferences. But yet, love would never question someone's identity, Right? Of course it would. You know, we reject, and I don't mean to be crass, we reject the rapist perspective who claims that it is their desired expression, and we would say, no, that is abhorrent evil, and our culture would join us. Why can we speak against one person's preference but not another? Because We have no definition in our culture of what is right and what is wrong, what should be called out, what should be allowed to stand. Our culture says love doesn't question, but God's word speaks differently. That we are going to live as aliens and strangers and sojourners and exiles in this world. We are going to be maligned. We are going to be spoken of as evildoers even standing for what is God's good design in this world. It's going to happen. Why? If they persecuted Jesus, he says, they're going to persecute you. What's interesting is then how, how should we live in that? It's there that we go back to verse 11. I urge you. As sojourners and exiles, you don't belong in the world as it is. If you are in Christ, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Not only are we strangers and aliens here, now we're at war. Right? And there's a waging of war, a conflict of its highest order, a battle, a battle where the enemy is armed for conflict, it seeks to overwhelm and conquer, it is constant, it is strong, it's aimed at your destruction, to conquer, to inflict pain, and as we endure it, we feel the threat of death. But what are we waging war against? Peter gets us again. It's not the world. What wages war? is the passions of the flesh that wage war against us. In a sense, the, the battle that you and I face, uh, like chiefly in the, in, at the beginning point, is inside of us, not from outside. There is an outside battle. I'm not d- d- but the, the chief battle that you start with is internal. So the famous uh, preacher D.L. Moody, he said it this way, he said, "I have more trouble with D. L. Moody than any man I know." What is he saying? Is like my what I ha- the internal conflict I have, the struggle with my own sin nature, the passions of my own flesh, are enough of a battle. I don't even have to look outside of my own struggle with my own flesh. And so the idea of keeping, uh, you know. Uh, being in the midst of this battle that these passions of the flesh wage war against your soul help us to understand what it is to live as a stranger in this world. So it's not just the world at large. There's, there's a sense where now there's a disconnect. We've got this new nature and this old nature that still resides. There's like this stranger going on inside of us and this battle inside of us as well. Then, all right, so given all of that, What is it? Is that the people of God live in the midst of the world, okay? Because God's people can easily say, let's grab our stuff. Remember the song from last week? We're taking our church to the moon. It's really easy to grab our stuff and let's get out of here. But it is God who says, no, 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 no. You are my people in the midst of this world, in the middle of a culture that is godless, and you are going to be my lights there in the middle of it. Peter says it this way in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So keep your conduct, one author would say, live lives among uh, the people who don't know the Lord. So it's basically how we live ought to be in such a way that it is honorable before the Lord, that we're called to live in the world, but not of the world. It's not a get out of the world. It is to live among the Gentiles, and if you're not familiar with that word, that is basically Uh, people that were not Jewish uh, at this time, and basically Gentiles were those who did not know of the things of the Lord. Obviously, Gentiles ultimately came to know Christ, but in, in this context, it's people that lived kind of antithetically to the things of God. And so among the Gentiles, among those people, conduct yourselves honorably. Now what's interesting is the word honorable and later in the verse the word good for good deeds is the same Greek word, okay? Uh, and so, to, so conduct yourselves or live lives among the Gentiles that are good or honorable, advantageous or beautiful is the word. So live lives that are beautiful. So the first one in verse 11 was keep yourself Uh, and, and like resist the passions of the flesh, so that's more of an avoidance. I think a lot of God's people stop there. Let's avoid the bad stuff. So there is a sense of avoidance, resist the passions of the flesh, but yet live lives that are beautiful. It is both. It's never one or the other. It is resist the things that are, that are against the will of God, but then pursue what is beautiful before uh, the watching world. One author, uh, Derek Cleve, he would say this, that the quality of our lives should be such that ultimately they will point away from ourselves to God. Get that? that the quality of our lives should be such that it points away from us to God, that men will see the beauty and attractiveness which characterizes the believer's life is only possible through some outside agency. What is he saying? That the way we live lives that are beautiful, honorable, good, is not so that you can say, man, that guy is a great guy. You know, isn't she wonderful no, it is lived in such a way so that people would actually see God, not you. And that they would say, all right, people just don't live like that. There must be something more than just their stick or their uh, uh, thinking through things. Something else, someone else must be at work. The outside agent being God through His Holy Spirit to live good lives oftentimes my how this plays out for me is you know i play a lot of golf and when people are on the golf course they're not exactly uh you know anger kind of rules the day right uh and when anger shows up uh, so do very colorful ways of describing things and um and so one very just easy tangible way is, especially when, when I'm with, with guys that don't know who I am, uh, just that, I, that, you know what, just not cussing stands as some marker in our culture. Uh, like one guy even said when they figured out that, uh, that I knew the Lord and that I was a pastor, you know, I don't tell people for a soul, but anyway, when they figured that out, one guy was like, I was trying to figure out why you weren't cussing. Because I was hitting enough bad shots that I would <laughs> normally if I didn't know the Lord. Why, why aren't you cussing? Well, because it's where God's people live honorably, beautifully in front of the world. So wh- what's it say? So then they may see your good deeds. They notice it. Like, why in the world? This guy is shanking shots all over the place. He should be... I was trying to figure out why you weren't cussing. He attached my life to my love of the Lord. I didn't say a word about it. Oftentimes it needs words, but that one did not, right? That we would live in such a way that would point away from ourselves and point to God, okay? Uh, and, And that they may see Uh, that they may see our lives and then do what? That they may see your good deeds and then glorify God. That the way we live, God's people in this world, if we are pursuing God's glory that is honorable, that is good, even when they accuse us of being evildoers, there's something noticeable that the Spirit can use can, can start to draw or convict or show that someone or something uh, is even better than what they've lived, that they may see and then they may glorify God. Isn't it interesting that just, you know, a very tangible step of just a way that you speak, a purposeful, intentional step of the way that you speak could be seen and then could be a part of somebody actually beginning to glorify God and coming to know Him. On the day of visitation is at the return of Christ, and that basically is judgment. Rather than stand under the wrath of God, they are glorifying God. Now that's fun. Last week we talked about, let's fight against the evil and the fallenness and the brokenness of this world. Let's push it back right? We talked about that fourth grade class, and that kid was like, I knew it. You know, kind of like, let's not live safe, you know, tidied up lives. Let's push back the things of the evil one. I don't know about you. We've used that probably 20 times in our home this week. Because probably on the drive home today, you will have an opportunity to push back the fallenness and brokenness of this world, your own sin or evil in some fashion. You know what? We're not going to stand for that you know what? My heart wants to uh, erupt in anger. God, by your Spirit, would you push back the things that are welling up in me? You know, how we speak to each other in our home. You know what? We are going to lift each other up. We're going to encourage each other so that what comes out of our mouth is useful for building each other up in the Lord. There are so many ways, little ways, that we can be a part of pushing back the passions of the flesh, but also living lives that are beautiful, honorable, and good so that people might see and people might become ones who glorify God. I want to welcome you into this redemption project that it is not just this move of God that's out there. How does He do it? He uses God's people, the church, to do it so not just you as an individual but we as a collective ought to look different that the world could see and they would say huh there's something to that group of people a group of people that's willing to maybe not walk away when things are hard maybe speak when someone has offended you to ask for forgiveness to forgive to reconcile that's not the way of the world The way of the world, when someone says something that's inappropriate, you're cut off, you've lost your platform, and you're fired. Cancel culture. Redemption says something different. Redemption says, yeah, you're going to say dumb things. And that's the honest look of the world. But the beautiful part of of Jesus and the hope of Christ is that he redeems and restores what is lost. So that, that God's people would say, yeah, that was terrible what was said. Or what what, what you did, or we can say it in honesty, but then we can redeem and restore. That's the gospel. Would we say? Would we not say that? That's what our culture needs, rather than you said it wrong, you're out. I heard of a Boeing, um, a Boeing executive get fired recently because of something he said in 1986 about women in the military. Think about that. He said something in 1986, and it was drummed up, and you can Google it, uh, and uh, he resigned. But reality, he was fired because uh, of something that is now not uh, an opinion that is in vogue. We ought to be different so our world says there's something different about those people that people can mess up, People can say hurtful things not because they're they're given permission but because we're sinners in the sight of God and then we are redeemed at the same time and we can heal and we can restore and we can reconcile. The world needs to see something different out of us as a collective and the list goes on and on and on. Next week when we look at the family, what does the world need to see is those same exact things. God, healing and restoring. Not just perfect people living perfect lives. That's not what our world needs to see because it doesn't exist anyway. We are people saved by grace, transformed by the love of God. Will we live that out so that people may see and then glorify God themselves? Let's pray. God, uh, would you be in our midst? Would you you be transforming us? Uh, Thank you for your work in us. Thank you that it's you who chose us. It's you who uh, made us holy. Father, it's you who redeem us. It's you who called us out of darkness. It's you who showed us mercy. Father, I pray that we would be humbled by that, but then, God, that that would start to be played out in the way that we live before the world in the way that we live with each other. God, I pray that this group of people, this church, Father, that we would not just... Uh, believe the gospel and say it, God, that we would live it. And Father, as even I pray that, it is so difficult. Forgiveness is so hard. Reconciliation is very difficult. Uh, Father, it's easier to just kind of put somebody at arm's length. And so, Father, in my heart, I know that I'm even battling against the thing I'm praying for, and I wonder if everybody else in some fashion is as well. So, God, meet us there, Keep us on our knees before you, God, that you would use us to be redemptive agents in this world so that other people might see and glorify you. Father, use us in that, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.